Listen, baby, it won't get weird. <laughs> that sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Harvest. I used Harvest to track time, track subcontractors' time, and invoice clients. Their time tracking is really simple and easy to use. Invoicing includes a pay now function by credit card and PayPal, and you can sign up at getharvest.com. Use the code RF to get 50% off your first month. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 28 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the second story of an office space in Orem, Utah. Oh, we also have Jameson Dance. Hi, I'm Jameson Dance. I'm super excited because today ITV just announced that we're doing the, the Nintendo TV thing, and I haven't what? been able to talk about it for like six months, so it's a good day. Cool. We also have Joe Eames. Coming at you semi-live from American Fork, Utah. And I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Uh, Tim's not with us with whip. Yeah, Tim's not with us this week because uh, he is in China. I thought I'd point that out because I think it's cool. Anyway, this week we're going to be talking about greenfield versus brownfield projects. Um, it was kind of funny when we were getting ready to do this. Um, some of the panelists were like, "What green, green, brown?" Yeah, I have to pull a Josh Schusser and ask for a definition. So, as far as I understand it, there are some nuances to this depending on who you talk to, but mostly um, Greenfield is a brand new project um, with few or no decisions made um, and no code um, written for it yet. And uh, Brownfield projects are effectively uh, older applications uh, usually associated with legacy code. Um, you know, so it's an application that already has code written toward it and typically is out there in the world doing whatever it is it's supposed to do. Now, I want to put this question delicately. Are there any fecal connotations to the color brown in brownfield? Only if it's PHP. (laughs) Then it's poop field development. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're not going to go down that tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, honestly, when Mormons make jokes about crap, it never sounds good anyway. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, um, how many of you guys have actually worked on a real Greenfield project? Like, been there from day one that you haven't just built yourself? I... So, I guess it depends on your definition. Maybe. Um... So we, we have lots of services at ITV. So I've been part of, of just spinning up completely new services that didn't exist. But there was still, I mean, we had other sort of similar things already. So some of the decisions were already made for us. So we, we kind of had a style established. But it was still like a separate project. Do, do you forget us so soon, Jameson? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't remember ever working here or... I do. I don't remember Greenfield stuff. I remember new features, but not complete. I mean, we were building off existing code. Or do I misremember? Well, what about the the map? Tony. Yeah, that that was a feature on top of an existing code base. It wasn't like a whole new project. It was just a whole new feature. 
If you can't tell, folks, that was a bad breakup. Oh. (laughs) No, it was a good breakup. We still hug every time we see each other. Yeah, we do. I love Jameson. So, Joe, I'm a little curious um, if you would count a new web service inside of an existing ecosystem, a Greenfield project. Well, I think that that really raises one of the more interesting questions about Greenfield versus Brownfield development, which is... You know, your description, things where there's been no decision is green and things where the code base is older is brown. Well, I think that leaves out that a big, huge chunk, which is probably what most people work on, which is, you know, projects that are being built, but decisions have been made. And now you're in the middle of that and dealing with ramifications of the decisions that were made and all the code that's been written and then still trying to build upon it. So... Um, services definitely, you know, services inside of a bigger project like what Jameson was talking about, where you've actually already made some decisions, I think falls inside that category. So is, is that green or is that brown? That's a good question. For for me, I don't know. It's it's hard because yeah, you come into a greenfield project, but you come in at a later stage. Is it still greenfield? I I don't know. Right. So if you mix green and brown, you get like camouflage. Well, camouflage. Yeah. Okay, so okay maybe, that's maybe it. It's We're it. And camouflage. camouflage field development. Yeah, camouflage. You have a problem where no one can see your projects. Right. <laughs> so you know where some de- decisions have been made, but some haven't. Right. That's an interesting place to be, where you can make decisions still, where you're not just refactoring or bug fixing tra- legacy code, but you're building. And that's that's a really interesting place to. Be. And I think that's where most people live their life. The majority of their coding lives is in that, that realm. Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah, it, it's, I think some of it just depends on the developer as well. I mean, if you're the person kind of making the decisions as you go along, um, then it may feel more like a greenfield project where if you are being exposed to code that somebody else is writing and making the decisions on, then it, it's probably more of a brownfield project for you. That's actually a really good point. To some people, every project they work on is a greenfield project because <laughs> every decision that's been made can be thrown out and, and made their way. Yes, and, yes and no. I, I, I think to a certain degree, you're probably right. But uh, to another degree, I, I have to say that uh, it seems to me that, you know, at a certain point, you're dealing with the, the older app, the ecosystem that you've built. And so even when you're adding new features and you're making new decisions, you're still dealing with the legacy code that's already there. Yeah. I so here, I was the third person to come on. Um, so the only code that had been written, like application code was written by electrical engineers, was not the best code. Um, Of course, not to say that my code is the best code, but it was better. Having been an electrical engineering major, ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, so I had the luxury of kind of being able to, to take command and everybody that came on, came on after me. So the whole, you know, software team has kind of got a little bit of my footprint in it. And uh, it's been a, it, it was fun to be able to throw away the crappy code and, and redo it. Um, but it took a long time. Right. So, so how do you deal with the legacy code? How, how, do, you, how do you manage that stuff? Like what's, what's your approach, EJ? You come in, you find a code base that 
isn't beautiful and you know you you want to make it maintainable and you know solve some of the problems that are there what do you do um well i think there's two kind of approaches um one is get the existing code to be more like the api that you want it to be externally whatever you know little pieces it's going to have to interact with and the other is the opposite way around build some new code the way that you want it to be but then put like a shim layer in there that interfaces in the backward way okay Does so that basically you maintain the api and you just make the you basically add a translation layer to the more usable code yeah you know like so as you refactor just keep those stubs for the backward stuff in there until you're done with the refactor and then you know when everything's working you pull it out yep i i I think joe and i will agree that there's something else that you should do with your legacy code as you refactor it documented (laughs) it's a type of documentation yeah (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's a guessing game. Okay, I know this one. Uh, <laughs> Hungarian notation for your variables. <laughs> Getting warmer. Uh, yeah, you should put tests around it. See, so at least characterization tests. So you know what it does, and then from right. there you can you can modify it without worrying about whether or not you've made critical changes to the API or critical changes to the the results that you get out of it. So there's this excellent book written by Michael Feathers called Working Effectively with Legacy Code where he talks through the process of adding uh, basically being able to um, change legacy code. You know, I don't know how many of you guys have had this experience I'm sure Chuck has, of being on a project where you got this large portion of the code, if not all the code, that you're just afraid to touch because you have no idea what might break in the entire system if you touch one piece of code because of how uh, coupled, uh, the code might be. And so in the, you know, those extreme, this, this book has techniques that work all the way from those really extreme circumstances all the way down to just, you know, Hey, we wrote this six months ago, but, um, we want to make some changes and we just don't have it fresh in our minds anymore. And so it, it's a process of adding tests around your code. And he has all kinds of methods to deal with, you know, even the worst, least testable type of code in the least testable types of languages in that book. It's an excellent, excellent book if you're working with very brownfield type development and code that you're afraid to touch. Yeah, I have to point out, you you said that I've probably had projects like that. I I just want to correct you. I've built projects like that. (laughs) Where, you, you know, you have that section of code and every time you try and add something to it, something else breaks. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, what, how do I get out of this this mess? So, yeah. I've read part of that book, not the whole thing. I can only make it halfway through a book and then I have to start a new one. It's a bad habit. Me but too. he has an interesting definition where he says that legacy code is just code that isn't under test. Right. Um, I, I, so I agree with that. That's kind of an extreme position, I think. But we all know extreme is better. It's like the Dorito. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, Mountain Dew has taught me that extreme is better. So yeah. what I really meant to say is that's a better position. Um, <laughs> but, but it's yeah, funny that you say that it's an extreme position because it sounds like you're saying that it might be a little bit too far down the the spectrum. I am a testing uh, 
skeptic. I'm also, I have lots of guilt about it because I don't do it as much as I should. But so, so maybe I'm skeptical about it to make myself not feel as guilty. Yeah. But I, I've, cause, cause I, I tend to see it the other way and I'm not sure it goes far enough because I've seen code under test that I would call legacy code. And, and it's not just because the tests weren't up to snuff. The code is just ugly. It's hard to work with. Right. So we had an interesting experience here at Domo. I brought like five of the front-end engineers with me off to the Utah Software Craftsmanship User Group. And for a lot of them, it was their first exposure to a group of people that were, you know, heavily, heavy believers in pair programming and test-driven development and, you know, all the typical agile practices and refactoring to patterns and things like that. And Joe, I just want to let you know that you can come here when you've had your time there. Just side note. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a very interesting experience because there's these five guys that showed up and then their thoughts afterwards about, you know, test driven development and code craftsmanship. And, you know, for people that haven't drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, really done some test, good test driven development for a long time, paired for a while. It's, it, it's funny because you just don't see the benefits, the, you know, the first hour and those tutorials, it, it gives you benefits in scenarios that just can't be covered by a tutorial that has code so simple that people can understand it in a single article. But when you get into something big and heavy and all of a sudden your tests are just saving your life and the, the other guy sitting next to you that's catching the code that you're writing is, you know, keeping you from making mistake after mistake that's, you know, that pays off six months from now and eight months from now, not tomorrow, but pays off, you know, down the road. That's when, you know, you get, you get those benefits and you get the people that really truly understand and believe how beneficial those things are. But, and that's one of the hard things to do is to teach somebody if, if they don't spend six months doing it, they, I don't think they have an easy time seeing the benefits. You can talk about it all day long, but it's hard to see. So I agree with my heartily with Michael Feather's definition that legacy code is code without tests, code that's not under test. So I had a thought while you were talking, and that's how conservative. So if you're doing a greenfield project where someone has an idea of what they want made, but it's not really decided how it gets made, how conservative or crazy should you be with your technology choices? Um, I mean, like relative to your own experience. So should you start up a new project using like some framework you've never done before because you heard it was cool? Like how, how do you decide how much new stuff to use or how to just use the same thing already that you've already used? So, so that, that is a good question. And I think it's going to vary for each of us. Um, I, I'm just going to start it off because as a freelancer, obviously – you know, I want to make the less risky choices. Um, you don't want to do resume-driven development? <laughs> yeah. Where you pick the coolest things so it looks really good on your resume? If I do, I'm going to build a few projects of my own in it first before I go and try and sell it to a client. And that's the reason responsible of you, Chuck. Yeah, and, and that's, that's exactly the point, right? Is they're paying me a premium to be an expert in whatever it is I'm doing. And so... I should be choosing technologies that will give them the most value. 
and uh, that, that so that's kind of the way that I feel if you're if you're in a situation where somebody is dictating the technology to you in one way or another either it has to be able to handle this kind of um, traffic or these kinds of requests or things like that then sometimes you can get away with with uh, picking a technology that looks cool that meets the requirements but I mean for the most part that's not the case um, I think if you're in a, a corporation and uh, and things like that and they're and they're satisfied with the risk then you can take more risks so I, I don't I don't know if, if you guys have a different take on that being employed at companies as opposed to being employed by clients what do you think AJ um, so I don't know. I, I'm kind of a bad person to ask because I came into a startup company as the third person. So I just picked stuff that I liked and I said, let's run with this. And some of those choices turned out to be good and some of them, you know, had their drawbacks. Um, so, I mean, like professionally, I'm not quite as old as you guys. Well, I'm not quite as old as you guys anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, thanks for that. <laughs> maturity exactly so um, next time I see you I'm going to run you with my rascal <laughs> into your what? With, with my rascal what's a rascal? you know little powered chairs that yeah. you see your grandparents in? <laughs> dude I'm not We're that not old enough to know what those are Joe <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so anyway I, like I've kind of in most of the jobs where I've been, I've been able to kind of start new things. I mean, that's one of the things that's very interesting to me. So that's what I look for. My first job at BYU, I had to work a lot with, um, with legacy code. And uh, one of the terrible things about working at a university, I would imagine at most universities, is that it's people who don't know what they're doing, picking up code that someone else worked on for six months who didn't know what they were doing whose professor didn't know what he was doing because he's never worked in the field and he's got a PhD, you know? <laughs> this sounds very familiar. Um, but then in terms of real jobs, like I've always been in a position where I've had that opportunity. So anyway, I, I would value your opinions. I mean, you guys have, have done freelancing and working around. So answer the same question. Go ahead, Chuck. Chuck already answered it. Yeah, I already answered it. What do you think, uh, Jameson? I I think you have to take risks somewhere, but it just depends on the downside. That's a really vague, hand-wavy answer. So if you're if you're working on something that is like mission critical, makes your company tons of money, um, you probably want to be a little more conservative. If you're doing something that is like helpful and useful and, and cool. I mean, hopefully you wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't helpful to your company, but I mean, you kind of have to pick your projects that are, you're more able to experiment on, I guess. So I do it sometimes, but on smaller projects. Right. You know, I think that, uh, a lot of what, um, is important in when answering this question is gaining exposure to technologies so that you can make wise decisions like there are times when even on a mission critical piece you can choose the wrong thing because what you're comfortable with just doesn't cover the domain space well and I'll give you an example a company I know of uh, was doing a chat client uh, 
a web chat client and they wrote the server in C and that's because that was what the engineer knew. So he wrote this, he, he wrote an actual web server in C from scratch. Oh man. Yeah. That's fun actually. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be an interesting project. Don't get me wrong, but you know, there, there are things out there that already do the job and right. do, it, do it better than what you can write in a few months. Right. Yeah. So, you know, think of it and think, Think of C. Think of the maintenance costs with something that's you know it's a solved problem somewhere. So, you know, if you knew about Node, and most people consider Node to be very bleeding edge. Most companies won't allow any production code. Like Domo here, we're a fairly forward thinking company, and even now we still don't have any production code that runs in Node. But that's just an obvious superior choice. So even if you're a C programmer, you don't know a thing about Node. Uh, I got to say that I think it's a, at that point, it's a mistake to say, I'm going to write this in C and not to just pick up, if, pick up and learn Node. It's just, it's not that hard. I right. totally agree with you there. It is, I mean, there's not, there's just, not even Ruby is as simple for the networking and HTTP stuff as Node is. Yeah. Well, I, I think ultimately what we're talking about here is risk. And so if, if there is more risk in going and trying new technology, and, and you have to do at least some research in order to know that, then then don't do it. But if there if there's less risk, you know, you go out and you figure out, okay, Node does these kinds of things really, really well, then, you know, then there's more risk in sticking with what you know than there is with taking some time to learn Node. Right. And I think the other piece is, is that usually we're building software for stakeholders other than ourselves. And so if that's the case, then we need to be able to accurately represent to them, hey, look, this is the direction we're going to head in. This is why we're going to do it. And this is the overhead that it's going to generate. And that way they understand the decision and they understand why the trade-off is actually a favorable one. Yeah. And so kind of going back to that point about exposure, if you don't understand the technologies that are out there and what they're good at and what they're not good at, then you can't make that decision. So exposure is an important, I think it's an important part of being a professional developer is even if you don't work in Node and you don't think you'll ever work in Node, at least spend enough time to understand why people are using it so that when the perfect project for that comes along, you know why people are using it. MVC frameworks are Another good example, you know, there's eight of them and they're practically clones of each other for many respects. So if you know one well, you're probably not making a poor decision by using it instead of another one. Right. So, but you know one well, if you're just, if you've just been doing JavaScript, you've never been doing an MVC framework and now you realize you're going to be building your first um, piece in JavaScript that's bigger than 60 lines of code and you're worried about maintaining the code and organizing the code and you don't know anything at all about MVC frameworks, then you know, you're not, you're, you're not fulfilling your responsibilities as a developer to your employer, in, in my opinion. I agree. At the same time, I think they should also be providing you with the opportunity to learn those things, even if they aren't directly applicable to the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, that's another thing. Seek out the companies that serve you as well as you serve your company. So if you're the type of, type of guy that really wants to stay abreast because that will serve your company, look for a company that supports you in that. So I have a theory about that. Um, there are some people that are really into learning new things and they're going to do it whether you let them or not. And if you don't let them, then they're going to do it on production stuff. So there's a lot of value in letting people, um, 
either giving them like developer time, 20% time, stuff like Google does or training or whatever, or, or being open to doing crazy stuff on production code. Right. So, and Bob, it, Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say Bob Martin has a book, uh, clean coat or the clean coder where he talks a lot about professionalism. One of the things that he states in, in his opinion is you give a good quality 40 hours to your company and then you spend another 20 hours afterwards sharpening your axe and honing your skills. And so he kind of takes the responsibility off the company to, to do that. Now, I, I think the company should support, should support you with, you know, paying for educational materials and conferences and things like that. I think that's the mark of a good company. But I also agree with, with Bob Martin that, you know, there's just not enough time. 20% time would be really nice and most companies don't provide that. But I think it's, there's just not enough time. You should be doing stuff on your own to stay abreast, you know, of what's going on. I, I completely agree. It, it's just that if the companies understand the value in that, then they should be willing to invest in it. Um, now, if they're not going to, then absolutely, you know, ultimately it's your responsibility to train yourself up and, you know, learn, um, learn what it is that you need to learn in order to do your job. Yeah, here in Utah, there's like less than 1% unemployment in software developers. And so every time I meet a software developer that's stuck at his job and can't get a new job, I just shake my head because they, you, you almost have to work hard to make your skill set so obsolete that you can't go find another job in a week. That's so true. Yeah, there's definitely a good market around here. Yeah. It's so hard to find people because some, I mean, there's so many companies vying for the same group yeah and there are places in the in the world and in the country where that's not true where you're in a you know smaller towns that only have so many places that pay for developers so it can be less true in other places but i'd say the majority of the country you know being a software development is a really good field to be in and it's not hard to find jobs if you keep your skill set up and if you don't i mean you're just you're killing yourself you're killing your future you got to keep up well the other thing is is that um, I, I bet you guys can guess how many of my clients are actually local clients. None. None of them. None of them are local. And so even though the market is so good here for developers, um, you know, there's a ton of remote work out there. Just gobs of it. You know, in just about any technology you care to work in, too. And so, I mean, it's not... It's, it's not unheard of for, for people to, you know, find the work that they want and, and not even have to leave home to go do it. Right. But anyway, we're, we're kind of getting off on a tangent here. Here we are. Um, so what, what kind of decisions do you make when you're, when you're making the, when you're going after a Greenfield project? What, 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 what decisions do you find yourself making, Joe? Well, obviously, uh, just the actual toolkit that we're going to use is, is a big one. And it's nice. I think what another nice thing about Greenfield development is it, it's tolerant to more risk. So that's the time when you can look and say, well, I, I hear that this particular tool, this particular framework, these particular libraries are better at this than things that I've used in the past. So for this Greenfield, we're going to start here. But um, Right, because you don't have to refactor around right. existing code. But I think another important factor, decision to make when you're doing greenfield development is right from the start, you know, put your, uh, your engineering practices into place, put, it, put together your continuous deployment, put together your continuous integration 
um, put together your automated unit tests and so that you don't have to pay that pain something sometime later on. So that's another another decision that's made right up from the front is what engineering practices are you going to embrace you know, in your development? And that and then on top of that, you know, merging the two is if you're going to choose, you know, jQuery or whatever, try um, abstracting, you know, the, your toolkit choices, your framework choices as much as possible so that if it turns out you made a mistake, especially when you're trying something new and you're not 100 percent sure, as much as possible, try to abstract it in, in inside of, you know, put it up. Or layer between your code and that code. So if you have to swap it out for something else, then you can. I mean, Mood Tools and jQuery, I believe, are really, really com comparable and feature set. And it's not hard to write an abstraction layer around that so that you can jerk jQuery out and put Mood Tools in if you so find that just jQuery isn't working out for you. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the um, growing object oriented software guided by tests. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah. And and they talk about all that stuff where you set up your continuous integration, you set up your deployment, you and you you actually test it and you make sure that it all works um as part of getting started in your um in in your new project and it just makes a lot of sense to me because then you know exactly what your constraints are before you really start making the big decisions that are going to kill you later on. Right. Right. So um, with brownfield projects, um, let's say that it is legacy code and that it's not tested. Do you pretty much follow the prescriptions that Michael Feathers lays out where you, you write a characterization test, then you, uh, then you refactor the code and, you know, put more unit tests in as you go? My experience has been that's more up to the tolerance in the company that I work for um, to really, you know, if they have a real to fix their technical debt issues or if they don't that determines whether or not I, if, I, if they do then yeah um, I, actually we have a funny situation going uh, an interesting situation going on here at Domo that's very applicable to this we have a large set of untested client side code written in Backbone just kind of plain Backbone and as we all know Backbone is not uh, is so unopinionated that you know what every developer's version of Backbone is entirely different so we've got, you know, 30 versions of back of a backbone implementation written and all this code that's just less definitely less maintainable. It's not terrible, but it's bad enough that it's causing issues. So we started an internal project to just migrate the client side code over to something cleaner. We've been writing a new framework based on Marionette to do that and we're starting to have at least the primary engineer on that who's not me. He's starting to have some second thoughts about we're kind of taking this greenfield approach where We've created a new framework and a new structure, and then we have to migrate feature by feature from the old code and the old structure into the new structure. And he's worried that the company is just going to get like a third of the way into that and then be too driven on, on building new features. They're going to leave it, and then it's going to be worse because now there's two ways of doing it. Even though the old way sucks, it's going to suck even more because there's still the old way and all its variations, plus now one more way, the new way. Yeah, it's super hard when you're trying to refactor and provide new features at the same time. Yeah. Wait, we did that. How did that happen, AJ? Didn't we? Because there was like this whole huge rewrite of lots of backend stuff while I was there, but we were also adding new features. So this is not a, a V2O. This is, you know, like a V11, right? Where you're trying to, and you're just cleaning up technical debt. What do you, what do you guys do? What would you guys do with that situation? 
So again, I mean, keeping API compatibility or little shims in place is what's been important for me. Um, and then continuing to add tests, um, definitely. Yeah, I really want to drive that home because the only way that you're going to know that your shim API is compatible is through the test. So um, that's just something to be aware of. But yeah, I, I really do like that approach where you can maintain the API and then, you know, um, maybe maintain a new API and the old API until you have the chance to phase out whatever system you're, you, you know, you're going to be implementing on, on the new application. What, it, go ahead. I was going to say, and then obviously you want to provide an abstraction layer in both pieces of code as quickly as possible where the areas that you have to add new features so that you can easily bring the new features over. So like wherever it is that you have to add new features, that's the place where you got to work first because otherwise when you go to merge in the new features, then oh, conflicts and crap. Right. So let me kick in what um, my input was as we started going through this process and the primary engineer is starting to, you know, worry about what's going to happen. And, um, and this is after a conversation that I had with a, a local developer here who's a, a really strong, strong uh, software engineer. And Can that I is... Ask who that is? Uh, yeah, David Adsit. Okay. Yeah, he's very active in the local software craftsmanship user group and a big blogger over at Pluralsight.com. Um, anyway, the input that I'm giving is that we still we should go with the greenfield in this situation because if you do brownfield, you know, we have funny issues like we're using uh, um, AMD, but people are relying on the global jQuery and global backbone instance, so they're not actually declaring it as a dependency because it's been potentially modified and it had, you know, um, like for jQuery had add-ons put in that, that now their code relies on it and just funny things like that. So there's these these pieces of the code that in order to fix, we'd have to change something that would touch all the code across the entire board. And so you go through, if you change those things, now you have to do a full regression test on the entire site to know that that change was right. And you always want to make your changes incrementally. You don't want to just sit down and say, well, we're just going to spend, you know, a month, clean up the old code and we're not going to check it in or see if it works until the end of that month. That's, that's a failed practice. So you got to do it incrementally. But if you do it, brownfield where you try to clean up just pieces at a time after uh, regression tests the entire system. So instead, if you migrate feature at a time, then now you only have to regression test that feature. Even if you have your unit tests in place, you still have to manually walk through a, a feature to truly know that it's in, in, you know correct. Unit tests are not uh, an assurance of 100% correctness. So after you migrate the feature over, you only have to regression test that feature and make sure that that feature still works. And the risk of breaking uh, the rest of the code because you're moving code into something new is very minimized. And so that was my, um, that's my feedback is to go with the greenfield anyway, because it, it lets you know that what you're doing is correct. Whereas you can, in brownfield, there's just, it's risky to, um, in this, these two approaches, I'm calling green and brown, they're not really that clear, but it's just risky to try to touch something that might affect a large percentage of your application and might break it and then have to regression test over and over and over again. That cost of regression testing because it has to be manual is just too high. Yeah. So 
we've talked a lot about API compatibility and regression testing and making incremental changes. Um, it feels so, so I'm working on a project right now that is a lot fuzzier than that. Um, there, I mean, there's an external server API that's really simple, but, but there's lots of changes to make in the client side code, um, because it's organized in, in just basically script tags that gets put in, that get put in, in the head, right? And changing that to a module system isn't something you can do incrementally. Like you have to do it all at once or it'll just break, right? So what about stuff like that where it, it, it's something that will take some effort and you, you, you can't like do it incrementally. So I'm a little bit curious about the implementation you've got there because I would argue that when you have the script tags, you can still put in a little bit of a shim so that's incremental. Like you can have your require function have access to the globals and then start replacing uh, the, the assumed global with requires one at a time until you know they're all up there or something like that. So tell me a little bit more about that. Um, that actually makes sense. I guess I just didn't think it through very well. So um, you're saying that you could convert all the code to individual modules, but you wouldn't use the require JS require function. You would make the require thing just like look in the global variables. It's kind of like what Tim talked about a couple weeks ago with your own require syntax. Is that or with yeah. your own little define function module loader thing? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So you could still use require JS or or browserify or pack manager or whatever, right? But then you just ex put in a, a script that right after that runs overwrites the require function, you know, does like some composition so that if it doesn't work the way you want it to already, then it will search in the globals and that when it does the define or the provide, that it also exports whatever you need out to a global as well. And then you can have your code work both ways. Sure, that makes sense. And then, you know, so you just hunt down the places in the code where you've got the globals little by little, you know, one script file at a time until all of the code or all of the globals have been um, replaced with requires and then you take out the shim and then test to see if it works. And then you do the build process and test to see if it works. Right. So I, I'm going to change the subject here unless there's uh, something else that we want to riff on with what we're talking about. No, that's a pretty I, awkward I would, silence. <laughs> I would like Hopefully to stick in one little comment about that, and that is lots of times um, you can do incremental approaches if you you know start really thinking a little bit outside of the box. I mean, I'm kind of like defeating my, my own argument here when I said you know do the greenfield because the brownfield has these higher risks. You know, in our situation, and we we've, we've thought about certainly some out of the box situations to try to make some of these incremental changes you know incremental and safe. Um, so there certainly is times uh, when you think that things are hard, but if you think a little outside of the box, you can actually find ways to make them incremental. But I think that comes down to horizontal changes that affect a large percentage of your code base. If you can make, if you can not make those and instead make vertical changes where you fix uh, a feature at a time, you know, one piece at a time and, and fix... And basically what it comes down to is making changes to your code 
that are likely to only affect a small portion of the code rather than something, a very cross-cutting concern. Right. If you can do that, then that's better. Much, much, much better. But it, it sounds like what you and AJ are both saying is that if you are sneaky enough, if you are clever enough, you can find some way to do changes incrementally, even if it doesn't seem like you can at first. Well, I mean, it's nice to say that, but that's, there's got, you know, there's just definitely situations where that's just not true. You know? Yep. You got to try as hard as you can, but you're going to, you're going to find some situations. There's no rule. I mean, this isn't like, uh, hey, every recursive algorithm can be built in a non-recursive way. This isn't like that rule. This is, you can say most of the time and probably more times than people realize that's true, but certainly not every time. There's, there are times when just you have something foundational that it's just so hard. But, you know, if like if looking at like, say, switching from Backbone to one of the other MVC frameworks, you think, oh, well, we've got to um, tear it out. It's got to be this big, huge thing that we touch every piece of the code once. And it doesn't have to be. You can, there are um, ways out there to play on the same page with Backbone and other MVC frameworks, and they can play together at the same time. You can slowly migrate pieces, you know, of your, even of a single page application from Backbone to something else and vice versa. So. Yeah, absolutely. So one other topic that I want to cover is that sometimes you get to, into brownfield projects and you look at it and, you know, the, the joke is always about the big rewrite, right? But, uh, you know, when is the big rewrite the correct answer? When, when do you decide, okay, this would be much easier as a whole if we went ahead and turned it into a greenfield project? I think the easiest answer to that is when the business, when you can convince the business that it's the right answer, and it's not always just a technical question. When it hasn't been written three times. <laughs> I mean, there are certain so, times, like if you were dealing with uh, an ASP application, or uh, you know, an old, old, really legacy technology, something that's been around for ten years, and you just want to replace the technology, that's certainly time a good candidate for the big rewrite. Well, yeah, but if you're, if you're replacing the core technology, you're probably going to have to anyway. Right. Although there, again, there are ways to do that with ASP and ASP.net. There's ways to make them play inside the same website and most it's hard. There are ways to do that. And that incremental approach is safer. So Bob Martin, uh, uncle Bob is def is on record as saying, you know, never make the big rewrite. Never make version 2.0 always incrementally fix and he's talked about situations where you know they've taken 20 year old systems uh, that were you know embedded systems running on crazy machines and rewritten them in current you know python type stuff and they still did it in an incremental manner right yeah i was going to bring up the old joel spalski article i have no idea how to say his name lots of s's and p's and that guy. Anyways, his, his article about um, the Netscape rewrite and how that killed them because it allowed Microsoft time to create Internet Explorer and eat their lunch. And, and so he's also on the record about never, ever completely rewrite your, your uh, code. Right. Yeah, there's, there's Are a there lot any of counterexamples of people who, who have done complete rewrites from scratch and, and had wild success? I can't think of any. I mean, even like Dig did a big rewrite and switched over to Cassandra and a bunch of stuff. And yeah, but Dig was dead it, before they did that rewrite. Like they were close, but that just finished them off because then they were focused on the rewrite and not on actually making awesome software. 
I can't think of any examples. I can't either, honestly. That, that right there is pretty telling. Very telling. So are we saying that it's never, I hate using absolutes, almost never appropriate to do a complete rewrite? Probably less, less often than most people think, I would say. If you think that you need to rewrite, that's like code smell. That's a smell. And you should really, really look closer at that if you think that you need to rewrite. So I think, it, to be fair, I think you can say that when you're done, the code will end up looking nothing like how it started as long, but, but you're not doing that by throwing it away right. and recreating the system from scratch. Like you could replace every single line of code in your application so that there's none of the old code, but so, if, but doing it without doing it incrementally is safer than throwing it all away and, and rebuilding the app from scratch. Right. Depends on what it is. I, I would argue that sometimes it's better just to scratch it and start it over. Certainly size of the application makes a big difference too. If you're talking about one man month versus, you know, yeah. a thousand, then one man month is a lot safer just throw everything away. Yeah. So size makes a big difference too. Yeah. Big. But who wants to be, you know, who wants to put on their resume that they were lead architect on a project that just got canceled six months in because it failed because, you know, you're as developers, we've got to consider what the business is likely to do. You know, if you tell the business, we're going to rewrite this in six months and you know, you're lying to yourself as well as them that it's an 18 month rewrite, then, you know, you're, you're killing your business. You're killing yourself. You don't want that on your resume. Agreed. Make make the so smart. that's why you don't put that part on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> you lead rewrite, lead lead comprehensive rewrite of project without the canceled part. Yeah, right. there you go. Yeah, we we uh, we went through some of that, and honestly, I wish that uh, at one of the companies I worked for anyway, um, and I wish now that we had actually done something like that, where we had just you know sat down and said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna move this piece off and uh, decouple it from everything else and just make it happy. Because I think we would have gotten way further ahead by doing that. So, Well, and it also teaches you a lot of skills that about keeping your code decoupled that you're yeah. just not to have. You know, no code stays greenfield for very long. It gets brownfield really quick. And if you don't know how to manage brownfield code and incrementally change it, you know, through techniques like uh, some of the things we talked about before, you're doing yourself. If, if everything is, ah, I, I can only code if I can start scratch from scratch, make every decision fresh and not have to deal with any previous decisions and previous code, then, you know, you're going to have a hard time finding jobs that will let you do that all the time. Yep, absolutely. All right. Are there any other um, aspects of this that we want to talk about before we wrap this up? Because we're about to where we need to do picks. Let's put a bow on it. Yeah. Okay. Star guy, shiny gold star. All right, then we'll have AJ start us off with picks. All right, I actually had some picked out beforehand today. So, um, first off, I've been reading this book called Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, and it is about the prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 1830s, Joseph Smith. And um, it's a very interesting book because it's 
like a, a lot of materials that that you come across about Mormonism and and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is you know based on proving that it's true or proving that it isn't true. And this book's really nice because it doesn't really consider whether or not it's true. It just says these are the facts. Like this is what Joseph Smith did. This is what the other members of the early church did. And these are the things that happened. And it doesn't have that, that like, oh, we need to prove that it's true or we need to prove that it isn't. It's just historical. And so I really like that. It's been very interesting to get a, a, you know, a lot of times you get that, that kind of fairy tale perspective of, oh, he was a perfect person who, who set up, uh, you know, the church and was just great and everything and then the other side of that is that he was a terrible person who stole away young young women to marry them and you know but this is just very I don't know simple and 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 it seems accurate and complete and I like it anyway um, another thing roll up crepes on State Street in Orem uh, cool place to hang out especially on Tuesday night they have an open mic night went there for the first time kind of by accident and uh, it was a chill place, so thumbs up to them. And then I just found a, out about this website, kalepen.co, and it's a Dropbox Markdown blog. So you take Markdown files, you put them in a Dropbox folder, and then it's uh, you, you go back to that site and you click publish on it, and it turns it into a blog for you, and you can uh, do the C name post thing so you can you know you can have your own domain and and have it look like it's being hosted on your own domain even though it's hosted there but i, I like the simplicity of, of you just throw markdown files in a folder I, I really don't like wordpress and some of these other ones because you have to put it in their system and then it's locked in their system and it's some ugly html that's really difficult to edit afterwards awesome all right um jameson what are your picks so a couple weeks ago, I watched a movie called Bernie. Um, it's with Jack Black and Matthew McConaughey. So it's got some famous people in it, but it was still one of those like film convention movies that didn't get widely released in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on iTunes, I think, for a couple bucks to rent. But it's my favorite Jack Black movie ever, for sure. He plays it kind of straight. Um, so it's, it's a funny movie, but it's not... He's not... Uh, being like wacky and crazy comedy and stuff. Um, but it's, it's based on a true story of a small town mortician that was apparently the nicest man in the world that, um, ended up murdering some little old lady. And it's really funny. It's, it's a great movie. It's pretty awesome. Um, so that's one of my picks. My other pick is, um, I do like a video game pick every week. I'm doing another video game pick. Dota 2. It's a free-to-play game on Steam. It's a PC game. Um, you control this hero and play with teammates to defeat this other team. It's super fun. And um, they just had this giant tournament a couple weeks ago with a million dollars in prize money. The winning team got $750,000. Wow. So... There are like lots of people playing, lots of people watching, and it's it was kind of scary to play at first because um, lots of people are really good at it, but they were very friendly, very welcoming community. So, thumbs my picks. Cool. 
Joe, what are your picks? Okay, so um, first I read, I'm not sure if I picked this already, but I read a little series as a trilogy that's actually just a single novel broken up three times on Amazon.com. Uh, it's the Derek Storm novels uh, written by the fictitious author, author Richard Castle, based, which is a fictitious author created in the show Castle. So while I'm at it, I'll pick show, the TV show Castle, which is awesome because they published, it's about an author played by Nathan Fillion, and then this fictitious author has published like now like six or seven books, and they're all really cool. Um, so anyway, those Derek Storm books are kind of like a little bit like Born, but very, very awesome, very awesome books. Uh, then the X-Wing miniatures, miniatures game is coming out uh, this week, so I'm going to pick that as well. And then I'm also going to pick Pex for Fun. That's P-E-X-F-O-R-F-U-N.com. That's a sweet site I just discovered this week. And it's, it's a Microsoft project, so don't hold that against them. And you have to, it's coding in C-sharp, so another thing to, not to hold against them. But it's this website it pulls up, and it shows you a whole bunch of, or it shows you one, like, algorithm, and it just gives you an empty function with inputs, and you know what the input, inputs are and the return type. And for most of the ones, you can refresh the page and get different puzzles. But for each one, you most of the time, you just don't know what the algorithm is trying to do. And so you just run it, and it'll tell you, all right, given these inputs, this is what the output should have been, whether or not your solution solved the problem correctly or not. And so you kind of have to just figure out what in the heck algorithm they're trying to get you to write. Like one of them was like an anagram. So put in a word and then to return a Boolean that tells whether or not the word is an anagram or not. And so... Closing in on that solution is just really fun. It's just some cool puzzles and really makes you think. So, so, so do they just give you an input and an output, and you're supposed to figure out what the? They give you a skeleton uh, function that's got the in- inputs declared and the return type declared, and then you're supposed to fill it in in the middle as to how to, you know, based on the inputs, that's correct output. And then underneath it, it's just all on a web page, right? Underneath it, they show you if you, every time you ask it to run, it'll take different inputs and show you, right, for this input, this is what the output should have been and whether or not you were, your solution that you have in the window is correct. Right. It's, it's awesome. It's totally awesome. Sounds cool. Yeah, it's quite cool. So many, they definitely need more implementations in other languages. So for, I, I want one more pick. That's the um, MLG championship in Raleigh, North Carolina that happened a couple weeks ago for the, uh, I believe it was the Group C Championship. There was this epic battle between Stefano and I can't remember the other guy. Do you remember the other guy's name, Jameson? Uh, no, I didn't watch that one. Uh, you still don't watch that one. You're, you're a loser. Anyway. I am a loser. I did not, I'm not up to date on my StarCraft 2 competitive. It was this amazing three-game series between this, uh, these two Zerg players and St- StarCraft II, Stefano and this other guy. And there was a six-pool followed by another eight-pool game. It was just, it was fantastic. One of my, the best series I've ever seen in a StarCraft II uh, series. So MLG is Major League Gaming? Yep, Major League Gaming. I think I was never a huge sports fan, and I actually like sports more after I started watching esports. Like, I understand why people like sports more yeah competitive lots of fun cool any other picks nope that's it 
All right. So uh, I guess it's my turn. Um, I, I started working for this company last week. Um, uh, they're a client, not full-time. Anyway, um, actually, it is full-time and they're a client. Anyway, um, they're using Tmux and Emacs on um, on these uh, machines up in, in Amazon. And if you've used Tmux, you realize that when you connect to a Tmux session, whoever has the smallest uh, window size that is what Tmux resizes to. And so um, I had these dinky little monitors on here. And uh, so every time I got on, it would resize to teeny tiny um, windows and it made it kind of hard to do some of the work. And, you know, one of my monitors was decent, so I could kind of blow it up a little bit. But anyway, I ordered some new monitors and um, anyway, the, the deal with the monitors is that uh, they have the uh, Visa 100 millimeter on the back. And my, um, I have these desk mount arms. Um, one of them's an, I think it's the LX desk mount. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, the other one is a little bit cheaper one that I got off of Amazon. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Cause I, I honestly love having the, the stands or the, uh, the arms for it. But, um, anyway, you can get a converter for, for the Visa 75 millimeter to the Visa 100 millimeter. And it's just this plate with eight holes in it. Um, the, the 75, uh, millimeter holes are threaded so that you can, um, basically use the, the screws that you would use to mount your monitor on there to mount the plate on there. And then you just, you know, uh, screw your monitor into the, the mount. So that's pretty cool. One other thing that I also bought that I, I'm totally loving is this GoGroove BlueSync, uh, Bluetooth wireless speaker. Um, it has a, uh, USB plug-in and it's it's really nice. The reason that I've been getting this stuff is because my uh, I have an old uh, iPod second generation and it turns out that uh, after you've had it for three or four years and you've used it as much as I have, the headphone jack tends to wear out. And so I thought about cracking it open and seeing if I could just solder it back together or find the loose connection in there somewhere, but I don't really want to open it up. So I, I just got these Bluetooth deals. So I got blue, Bluetooth headphones and I got this Bluetooth speaker that just sits on my desk so I can listen to I, uh, to podcasts while I'm working. So um, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, and uh, those are my picks. All right. Well, then we'll just wrap the show up. Um, thanks. Thanks, you guys, for coming. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back on next week. See ya.